You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Thank you to Freedom of Species. Back next week from 1pm, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to their program page where you can subscribe to their podcast and find them on social media. While you're at the website, do head across to the Encyclopedia program page as well. Uh, head to our website, which is encyclopedia.org. Might be a bit difficult to spell, hence head to the 3CR website and you'll find it easier that way. Uh, and also find us on social media. We've been posting a lot of articles this week uh, about what's been going on in drug news around Australia and around the world. Uh, we will have a special program this afternoon, so I won't be able to cover much news, but please head across to uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, often uh, retweeting and tweeting along with conferences uh, that are happening all across the world. And there have been uh, a couple of conferences um, in the past uh, month uh, including the ISSDP, that's the International Society for Sensible Drug Policy uh, conference was on, and also the 11th International Conference on uh, Nightlife, Substance Use and Related Health Issues that was held uh, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, uh, which was attended by Steph from DanceWise, the coordinator of DanceWise, who, will be, who, who once she returns, we will be talking to her um, to hear about this nightlife conference because a lot of it is focused on those cities around the world, Melbourne being one of them, uh, that are 24-hour night, uh, nighttime economies and how to pull all those things together. It's 3cr.org.au uh, for more information there. 3CR Radiothon also coming up, so listen out for more information about that. But right now, I'm going to hand it over to Chloe Spann, who will let you know about what's on the program this afternoon. This is In Psychedelia. Listening to 3CR Community Radio in Psychedelia. This is Chloe, and happy to be here again uh, since the last month's episode. Um, we've got a pretty exciting lineup here today with a few people who uh, came into the studio last month and shared some pretty candid experiences. Um, there will be a content warning on the episode that we've got coming up um, for you today as well. Um, we're going to be discussing some pretty sensitive topics in relation to gender diversity, sex work, drugs, addiction, and personal stories. So if that's not for you, feel free to tune out um, from Encyclopedia today. We're going to be following on a little bit from the episode that we had um, last month, and we're going to be talking a bit about the intersection between feminism and the drug war. Um, the reason why we want to do that is because it's something that we tend not to kind of like really, really hone in on um, and tease out all the little aspects of what that looks like for people, for the community and for, you know, broader policy implications in general. Um, so, yeah, I hope you enjoy what we've got to talk about today. So we've got some special guests in the studio. Um, pseudonyms have been applied to protect their true identity. Um, we have Frank... Sarah and Kate. 
uh, and a way of kind of trying to talk about feminism as well as the drug war um, and the way that it might interact together. We've got a question that we're all going to attempt to answer today, uh, which is what are the gendered experiences of people who use drugs and how this may play out in people's everyday lives? It's a, it's a big question. What are the gendered experiences of people who use drugs? And I think that it would largely depend on... I mean, there are so many kind of contingent factors on that. It would depend on class. It would depend on um, race. It would depend on socioeconomic issues, you know. <clears throat> but for myself... Um, I guess, so when I was using a lot of heroin, I think that part of the problem with legislating in terms of the war on drugs is that it doesn't actually stop people from using drugs. It just makes drugs more dangerous to use. Um, and it makes drugs, um, illegal to get and more dangerous to get and more expensive to get. And so like my experience when I was using a lot of drugs, um, was particularly in terms of gender was that um, in my scene, in the scene, the men tended to do things like burgs, they tended to do things like crime, they tended to do things like dealing, and the women and the queer people tended to do things like sex work. And, um, you know, I went into sex work because I couldn't afford my habit on the amount of money that I was getting, and you kind of need to get money immediately. And I think that there are um, socialized gendered ways in which people are going to do that you know like um, it's been my experience working in um, certain areas of mental health and working in or, and being in the addiction community that um, I guess men tend to be more inclined towards doing harm to other people and um, women and queer people tend to be more inclined to doing harm towards themselves and so I think that um, you know, that probably plays into why men were, like the men were the ones doing the bergs and the ones doing the dealing and the women were the ones doing the sex work. And um, sex work is largely a gendered experience. I mean, we don't really have an epidemic of women going around cruising for sex workers. Um, and, you know, I, when I was a sex worker, I didn't, I didn't do well in brothels. I didn't do well doing legal sex work. I, uh, you know, I was a heroin addict. I looked like a heroin addict. Um, you know, I was emaciated and I was gaunt and I did better... I made better money on the street, basically. And, um, you know, I never had a street client that was a woman. I only ever had street clients that were men. And um, I guess my experience of being queer and being non-binary and um, being gender diverse meant that um, I was far more susceptible to violence and I was far more susceptible to violence from men. Um, because again, I was working on the street and, um, like it wasn't just clients that, um, were, I guess, a risk. It was just the GP, you know, like when you're walking around the streets of St. Kilda, you know, as an emaciated heroin addict in a dress, like you're susceptible to being bashed by groups of dudes who are going around drinking, you know, um, it was kind of a thing. Um... I think you mentioned your GP there. Did you want to talk a bit about that? No, the general public. Oh, the <laughs> yeah. general the, public. The GP. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah right. No, no, not, not my general practitioner. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Sarah? When I think about how gender played a massive, how it played a role in my drug use and also in 
the paradigm of drug prohibition, it's important, I think, to begin um, with my background. So I grew up in Housing Commission, uh, but I wasn't just lower class. I was considered uh, underclass. That term is a controversial term, but I find it useful. Uh, And what I mean by that term is that When you think about the working class, um, they're the people that are engaged, I guess, in low-income work. But then there is a separate class to that that are kind of locked out of the economy. So they're locked out of institutions that might benefit them. Um, That includes healthcare, justice, and also the workforce. And the reasons why they might be locked out vary. It could be due to disability, criminal conviction, um, and drug and alcohol use, as well as a myriad of other Um, forms of disadvantage and we think about the drug war it has that kind of compounding effect of locking people out with um, comorbid mental health issues which often are accompanied by drug and alcohol use and then they get convictions and then they're further more entrenched into poverty so that's the community that I grew up in so by 13 I was developing you know quite bad anxiety um And I had been targeted by sexual predators from, like, the get-go. They were just plentiful throughout my childhood. It was just a common par for the course thing, something that I thought that every person experienced, which is weird. Um, So, yeah, so that was the development of, like, I guess, a traumatic or trauma-based mental health response, and that inevitably led to um, self-medication. So... Looking at some of the research done into um, young people accessing drug and alcohol services, there was a survey done by WISAS, um, I believe it was spearheaded perhaps by Kat Daly, um, about young people accessing services. And they found that young women, more so than young men, were uh, had a background of trauma, neglect and abuse. And that was certainly the case for me. So when I found out about YSAS, it was only through my brother being diverted through the justice system. So I would never have even found out about services if it wasn't for the male in my life. And that kind of speaks to how drug prohibition, when it gets framed within a law and order response, is only going to target people that are suffering from drug and alcohol-related disorders with a law and and order approach. So young women who are less likely to act out in uh, what are considered, I guess, um, noticeable uh, criminal ways are left to fall through the gaps. So that's what happened to me. So I was homeless by the age of 14 And when you're a young girl who is developing a substance abuse problem, um, that leaves you quite vulnerable to predatory men around you. And I was just having a discussion earlier, and I feel confident in saying that the majority of drug dealers are men. I... You can you can't I'll look it up after the show, but I feel confident in saying that the majority of drug dealers are men, and that was certainly my experience. So they're also the gatekeepers to the substances that you are using to self-medicate. And of course, at age fourteen, you don't have an income. Like I didn't have an income, so 
And I also just needed protection. Um, you know, you need safety and protection and you can't access the same kind of mechanisms that the working class or the middle class or, you know, the non-deviant class in society can access. Like, I couldn't go to the police and be like, excuse me, like, this person, you know, is hitting me or hurting me because I, you know, you're just locked out of those institutions by the nature of the class that you come from. And that leaves women particularly vulnerable because it becomes like an internal, I guess, police. Like that community has its own internal policing and that's usually, you know, like I guess running through people's houses, using baseball bats, perhaps gang violence. Um, And, you know, it's it's a brawn kind of strength-based system of justice. Um, So to access power or to access safety, um, young women uh, like myself are more likely to end up in the homes of predatory older males. So I ended up living with a man who was about um, like 11 years older than me and I was, he'd, you know, started grooming me from 12 or 13 and I ended up living with him and he was supplying my habit and I didn't even know about youth services because there was no health-based approach. Even though child protection came around to our house and they asked me, you know, like, what's going on? Where is your parents? Are you in a relationship with this man? And, like, he just lied. Like, I just lied. And, you know, he groomed me to lie. Like, he'd said, if they come around, say this, because otherwise I'll go to prison. If I go to prison, I'll die. And then it'll be, like, your fault, basically. So we told him that uh, – we told DHS that he was gay. Apparently that meant – that everything was fine, <laughs> they could leave. Oh. Um, like, what is that? Like, 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 <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's funny. Like when, when it went to court, when it went to court, he tried to use that defence. He's like, "Oh well, I've slept with a man before, so ergo I'm gay." Like that's not how that sexuality works. works. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, so that was the story that we had concocted. Um, so. Yeah, uh, from 14 to 16 or 13 to 16, um, I didn't even really know much about services that were available to me. So I had no real way of getting out of that situation. And if it wasn't for my brother, who was a little bit older than me, being picked up by police and being diverted into detox services, that I found out about youth services. So we can really see the gendered nature of service provision there. And we can also see the gendered nature of how drug prohibition um, really exploits and um, I guess I can't find the word I'm looking for but um, hot, like compounds the vulnerability of women um, magnifies perhaps yeah perhaps. Like magnifies disadvantage yeah you know if it might be you know for women for people who identify as gender diverse it might be for a black person for a black young woman who is indigenous in Australia. Yeah. Like, it just magnifies already existing disadvantage. Yeah, so you already have less power and then that is uh, further exploited. So I guess, like, from that, I just want to move on. Um, I've discussed that at length. You'll probably find me discussing that on other psychedelia shows. Um, I want to move on to, I guess, my recent um, experience with service provision so I am 30-ish now, <laughs> um, and I decided I had learned from uh, Kat, who was doing a study um, in this area, 
how actually how common it was so I never knew this whole time like I'd gone through this horrific ordeal I'd spent about my, my entire adolescence with this predator who was like abusing me and you know, just um and it's really funny because there's such like weird traditional gender roles within the lower class criminal community and it, it's bizarre so you know he had uh, he was very quite religious and he had a lot of um I wasn't allowed to watch sex in the city because it might make me a slut you know stuff like that you know like there was Come just on. heaps and heaps of like weird traditional gender roles throughout that uh, period of abuse as well so um later on I met with a researcher and um I had gone from thinking that I guess this was just this kind of weird thing that had happened to me it was kind of uncommon and I don't know it was strange and then I saw the data and it's actually incredibly common like, which is you know it was really comforting but it was also like oh my god like this is happening across the board particularly to disadvantaged girls like they end up vulnerable they end up exploited they end up in the house with predatory older men who exploit them through drugs and they're unable to access power or resources because of the criminal nature of that world so that's when I decided to charge the guy who had committed these offences because I was like, you know, society needs to know about this, society, you know, it needs to be a part of the discussion um, and other young women need to know that they do have power and they can access the same institutions. Although I am going to note that one of the reasons why I was able to then go on to charge him was probably because I had gone on to university later on in life and I had developed social capital. And it was it's funny because I was um, t- telling you about this <clears throat> the other day, Chloe, like a lot of people ask me, like, how did you get out of that? Like, how did you, you know, escape from that? And I, I talk a lot about like service provision because they are, it is important. Like service provision is important. They did play a <coughs> massive role in helping me out of that. But one of the major reasons I made it out was because I was homeless. I had a bunch of garbage bags and I met a guy through a friend who just had a room and he's like you can live here if you want and I did and I started sleeping with him and I'm lucky that he wasn't exploitative because that's what ends up happening usually because I was about 20 and I was homeless and and usually just the cycle just continues you find another male who will help you and offer you privilege and in return they exploit you and I was just lucky that this particular male who's still my partner today 10 years later he's a great guy (laughs) he's really lovely but I'm really just lucky that I found him but again like that's so gendered do you know what I mean like I wasn't able to really escape until I found like I guess a stable stable older middle and he's a very middle class like his Mm. family own a property in like Brighton or Oakley or like somewhere (laughs) like wealthy um so that gave me social capital that helped support me into university and then that later enabled me to access the justice system so yeah yeah so it kind of sounds like just to paraphrase what you, what you were saying before and kind of like what we were talking about the other day is that through developing like a, another relationship, a more positive relationship with a, with a nice man, it gave you access to and, and kind of like um, you were able to use a whole lot of resources and stuff that was really part of the mainstream world that previously like they weren't they weren't available to you. Yeah, yeah, and he has such a like it's funny I always say he has such a legitimate looking head on him. Like he just does. He just like you look at him and he just looks like a legitimate middle class guy. And um, previously, it always felt like if I walked into a shop. Or 
or wherever, like they could smell the pour on me. Like they could just smell the pour on me. And I would, and, and that in turn um, has this kind of compounding effect of making you act suspicious, even though you're not being suspicious, but like you feel out of place, you feel like you don't belong. So then I got this like nice, like it's like pretty woman, mm. <laughs> like really bad. And I think that like, you know, whilst it might have been beneficial to me, there's obviously inherently like some real problems in this like in this story. But yeah, he made me feel more legitimate. I was able to walk into shops and not feel like they were going to kick me out for stealing or search my bag or do whatever. And um, yeah, and I was able to like start accessing like the health services that I needed on a more regular basis. So I was accessing youth services and all the rest of it through that period, but it was quite sporadic because I was homeless and I was reeling with my PTSD and it was a lot of like um, self-harming and all that kind of stuff that I was just not able to really get my feet on the ground meeting a kind of middle class older male that was a pot like a real positive role model like I can't speak more highly of him I don't believe that like he is an exploitative person or anything but meeting through meeting him I was able to um, gain social capital that allowed me to access institutions but again like why did I have to why couldn't mm. where are the women <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting what you were talking about in terms of the um, traditional gender roles in that society of people because it's completely true and I think it makes a lot of sense because traditional gender roles were constructed with the intention of exploiting women like that's yeah. what traditional gender roles are for and you know as a queer non-binary person who was doing a lot of I guess back then it would have been called cross-dressing um, it was really interesting to see how I fit in to that community of people as a, as a cross-dresser, basically, because a lot of the men didn't really know what to do with me as a, as a gay man. They yeah, were like, like, do, do I respect your rights or not? I don't know. Well, they, they didn't know how to respond to me. They yeah. were like, is he going to touch me? Like, is, is, it, is it catching? You know what I mean? But when I was like, when they kind of put me into the box of being a woman, um, that actually created a lot more weirdly acceptance for me in those kinds of communities it was really bizarre yeah, it's strange. yeah. because you're not like threatening their um, you know um, really important kind of like sense of self and pride and masculinity like okay <laughs> like it was completely insane but also like in terms of the class thing like I largely managed to escape from being um like arrested very often because I think that the police in this town are deeply stupid and they profile people. So if you just wear some cashmere and you know you're white and like <laughs> you know you can kind of you can kind of pass as middle class and they don't think that you can commit crime. So they kind of their eyes you know turn somewhere else. I but, still find it odd that I pass as middle class. Hey, like right. <laughs> sometimes people at um, like at union stuff will accuse me of being middle class and I'm like, what really? Okay. <laughs> oh, but like I am completely middle class and that's exactly why I got away with doing the things that I did. And all of my friends all have criminal records because they're not middle class. They don't have the social capital that I have. They couldn't just kind of like, you know, blow it off. <laughs> like, blow off their middle class. <laughs> blow off their working class and just like, you know, go back home or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, I couldn't really do that back then either. But, um, yeah, no, it is definitely interesting. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> What are the gendered experiences um, that come to mind for you, Kate, in terms of um, people who might use drugs um, and how that might have affected you in your life? Um, I think as both um, Frank and Sarah sort of pointed to, it's 
um, the lived experience or the gendered lived experience of people who use drugs is so broad and varied. And, um, you know, I think I can definitely speak to my own lived experience and that is um, growing up in the sort of festival and party space and being a woman in that space and sort of what came with that, um, you know, the time I started being introduced into these sort of spaces of, you know, music festivals and going clubbing in my um, mid to late teens um, was also sort of the same time I started experimenting with substances and um, having a lot of, like, my first experiences and experiences that you'd quite often, you know, hope or... I think I had a bit of a misguided idea that um, these spaces were inherently safe. Um, and, you know, reflecting on that now that I'm a bit older, I think I've sort of realised that with those sort of early experiences of, you know, um, discovering, like, drug use and also how that can enhance these experiences, especially, like, anyone who's been on the dance floor and really found a connection and found a real sort of happiness there... Um, I've noticed that these experiences are also peppered with weird sort of sexual advances, um, sometimes very, very unwanted, um, that, yeah, just seem to, I guess, at first I sort of thought that it was just part of the whole scene and they came hand in hand. But um, as I've gotten a lot older and been able to reflect a bit more critically on that, I've realised how wrong that is. And... um, also just the fact that I guess in these spaces there's so much of the onus on, you know, women and gender diverse people to look out for their own safety or, you know, just be looking out for the safety of their friends when really that um, that, responsibi- <laughs> that responsibility really needs to be on the people who are perpetrating these really um, unwanted behaviours and not allowing these people to have these experiences whether it be on substances or not but have these experiences that are supposed to be enjoyable um but also have them be safe Mm. and and what would you say about accountability in terms of what does that look like for people who might be more likely to perpetuate these sorts of like unwanted advances and you know invading your personal space like that Mm. I think um yeah accountability is a really um important point there and I think that that is um as much as, you know, women and um, people in general should just be able to be in these spaces and take substances and be safe, um, the people who perpetuate these behaviours really can't be using the fact that they're under the influence of substances as an excuse to um, perpetuate these behaviours because why why is my experience less important than yours and why, why is the fact that, you know we're possibly on the same substance and what um, what gives you the right to then use that as, ex- as an excuse to come into my space and make me unsafe and affect my experience, you know? Mm, absolutely. It sounds like, um, like there's a whole lot of kind of like entitlement going on there for these, you know, for it sounds like I'm going to make an assumption here and presume that a lot of the time it's got to do with a lot of, a lot of guys and a lot of men. And let's face it, when you go to a festival, like it is largely kind of like probably, you know, a majority crowd or, you know, the 
punters are like, like probably more likely to be men, like mm. potentially. Um, so there's probably a bit of like you know a bit of a power imbalance in the sense that there's more guys there than there is girls. I mean, I mean, go to my Aeon for a second on a Saturday night, like go figure. Um, so was there a particular example um, that you can kind of think of for yourself or for a friend that kind of like, you know, typifies, you know, this kind of um, unfairness that you've had come up for you? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think, um, don't even get me started on imbalances in the music and dance scene um, in terms of gender and not just gender, but identity in general. I think there's a whole lot of space for more diversity there. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um yeah, I think, look, over, like, throughout my teens and early 20s, I was, yeah, a huge part of my life was being in that sort of festival and later on that the clubbing space. And, um, yeah, I've definitely had some experiences. One that I can think of most is um, at one point I was working um, door at a club and, you know, hadn't even been partying at all that night, was literally just sitting there stamping people's wrists until about 5am and about 2am when you know the last sort of stragglers are coming through before we stop letting people in um a guy came through and um very verbosely demanded that I let him in for a cheaper price because he was a hospo worker and just gotten off work he showed me his um you know his hospo card and everything and I was like sorry dude it's this much entry you can pay it or you can go home um it's really it's really not up to me and it really doesn't affect me whether you go upstairs or not um little did I know that it actually would affect me and unfortunately affect other women in the venue because when I did finish my shift at about 4 or 5 a.m I went up there and this man was extremely messy um clearly very drunk and possibly under the influence of other substances and um, I was dancing with my friend who had also been working on the door at the front of the dance floor and just having a good time minding our own business having a bit of an unwind after work and this gentleman who I had regrettably let in to the club um, decided it would be funny if he started coming and grinding on my friend and then grinding on me and then putting his arms around both of us and we both very clearly and um, surely told him to take a step back and then he didn't listen, kept doing it and my friend said, look dude, um, we actually both work here, we're the people who let you in and if you continue this behaviour we're just going to have to get you kicked out. And to that he laughed and flipped us off and continued to go and just be a general nuisance. Um, My friend went and got the bouncer and the man was escorted out about an hour later i think when the club finished we exited and the guy was still waiting there out the front of the club his mate his mates had left him there to um i guess i can assume wait for us which makes me wonder what the hell they were thinking um in terms of accountability Mm. um and this guy continued to confront me and my friend and say how we were sluts we were effing horrible just really really gross things that I don't really even want to remember um that is so unfair mm, even at one point threatening my friend with sexual assault right yeah and at one point as he was yelling at my friend 
Oh, I'm not big by any chat by any stretch of the imagination, but I actually had to step in and say, "Look, dude, actually step back. I'm like this behavior is completely not on." And he threatened to hit me um, if it wasn't. And I hate to say this, but if it wasn't for my male friend who was there, <laughs> um, who stepped in as well and just sort of pulled us away from the situation and walked us down the street, who knows what that guy would have continued to do or the actions he would have taken from there. Um, it really makes me think that situation, one, why was that our responsibility to take our own safety into our own hands? Um, and two, why, what, what was going on in that guy's head, um, whether he was on an absolute other planet or not, um, that made him think that he could come in and abuse the people who had actually let him into the club in the first place or as a matter of fact anyone there what was what was his privilege what was his right in that matter you're listening to 3cr music on 3cr is the best you're listening to 3cr You're listening to 3CR Community Radio Station in Psychedelia. What you're listening to at the moment is the voices of Frank, Sarah and Kate who are discussing their own personal experiences to do with the gendered nature of things like going out and partying and coming into contact with um, threatening situations, uh, largely that might have to do with harming their health and welfare. Uh, In general, please be mindful that there is a language and content warning with uh, the rest of the episode today. So if you're not interested in hearing any strong language, um, content to do with sex work, sexual advances on the dance floor and other sensitive matters, then please just tune in. Thank you. Sarah talks a lot about predatory men and it sounds like that's exactly the sort of experience that you've had in the public at a nightclub that should be safe that should be inclusive where anybody no matter who they are should be able to walk in that front door Mm -hmm. and know that they've got their boundaries and their rights respected but the reality is completely different dance dance floors are so predatory just to like i just i've been going out at my local and it gets to a certain point of the night that you have to leave because the dance floor is full of dudes that will just keep it's like they keep swooping in like mm-hmm. hyenas and it doesn't matter like what signal you give like you move away you move to the other side of the floor you like walk away again I physically pushed men away yes yeah, and they like pushed and they away. do this like thing that and i don't know Sucks. in what world they think that uh, i don't know what they're thinking will come of it so like you're dancing and then all of a sudden you'll feel like something got your back mm-hmm. and it's they come up behind you and they start like grinding and dancing behind you like mm-hmm. so you won't notice at first yeah and i don't like what well he's gonna be tricked into it like <laughs> oh look, I didn't see you there while we're dancing together now like I don't understand why they keep doing that and they just keep swooping in like continuously and you have to leave because I think what's so unfair just to reflect on what you were saying before Kate is just that 
after so many attempts by yourself and by your friend to actually like assert your own rights and actually let them know that this isn't okay with you, you know, for a number of different reasons. As you said before, you had to push them away with both hands. You've rejected their advances. You've had to actually like outline the boundaries of, you know, this is an acceptable way to enter this nightclub. Like no matter what you were trying to do there, like it was still at that time impossible to avoid like, you know, and a, a potential like physical assault like that's just it's not acceptable it's absolutely not acceptable and on the other side of that um what sarah was just saying with you know there's sort of nothing you can do to deter these people when you are on the dance floor um whether it be you know physically pushing them away or trying to use your words to i don't know reason with them (laughs) um it also has made me just sort of think of experiences i've had and you know people in my life have had on the dance floor where maybe um it's quite clearly um obvious that we're inebriated and we are not in a position to give consent to someone making those sort of advances on us I and feel that like does not I feel like that attracts them more like I had I, just I recently so yeah too. like three weeks ago my friend was with me at a club and she accidentally had too much to drink um and she was she was using other substances at the time so the other mm. substance that she had had that kind of effect of countering alcohol um so it was like a stimulant so when that wore off the alcohol just cascaded in on her mm. and um I tried to warn her all night I was like please don't drink like you know anyway so um the poor girl she ended up quite inebriated by the end of the night and i was like trying to like get her out because it was very clear that she was just not okay um and that just just like the guys kept kind of going to her Mm. and this one guy like grabbed her and he was like you know he tried to get put his arms around her and i had to be like can you i'm trying to get her home like can you get away he's like oh no she's right you're not what do you say he's like you're not your you're not her mother or something like that. i was oh like God. i was yes. like um she's she can't consent i just said to him like she can't consent he's like oh who do you think i am like and i was like well obviously look what you're doing okay. yeah and then it gets where i get her out Oh, oh, actually, I had to get the bouncers to help get her out because she was very, you know, she was very, she wanted to party. So I was like, let's get out. And I got her out. And then when she was outside, she sat down to have a smoke. And again, they just crowded around her, these dudes. And I had to try and, like, get in and be like, no, we're going home. We're ordering a cab. Like, and they were like, no, no, she's right. Like, you should come back and party with us. It was so clear that she was done for the night. Like, she was done. (laughs) Like, she was ready for bed. And it just, like, attracted more, like, it just seems to be like the nightclub scene, the um, you know, the party scene can become like it's like a hunting ground for like a lot of Absolutely. men, you know, and it's kind of disturbing. Um, I don't know why. Like, is there any like all female clubs anywhere or what? Like, <laughs> so there, and I think this is something that has it has a really special place in my heart because of these sort of experiences and because of living that and seeing that on a weekly basis. This behaviour, pep quite often perpetrated by males is the need for these people who you know women and gender diverse people queer people the people who are making who are being made to feel so unsafe in these spaces by these perpetrators their voices need to be included in the discussion of how we make these spaces safe and I really really admire a lot of um, collectives and club nights Um, around Melbourne and internationally and also festivals as well that are really taking it upon themselves to step up and really 
no longer condone this sort of behaviour and actively discuss how we can move forward with this. And I think part of that is lifting up these voices and giving them more of a space in the music and festival scene is switching that power imbalance and also, you know, as a community um, coming together and, you know, having that sort of self-governance and also, like, bystander intervention, you know? It shouldn't be on the people who are being subjected to these really uncomfortable and really not okay behaviours. shouldn't be on, like, all on them to protect themselves, even though we often and do and we look out for our friends. We should be looking out for everyone out there and we should be making it absolutely zero tolerance that these sort of behaviours get away because it's been going on for too long, that it's just a normal part of the club scene or the festival scene um, or, you know, or of people going out and partying is that they're going to have to put up with this behaviour as a consequence. Do you know what's weird? You know how sometimes bouncers will refuse people entry if they're too drunk? Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that they don't do that as much with women? Oh, yeah. Because uh, I was wondering that whole time with the story of my friend, why... Like, I had to go and ask about, can you please help me? Like, she needs to go home. Like, why? They should have seen it. Like, in my mind, like, the club was almost It was about 3 o'clock. There was, like, 20 thirsty dudes, mm. my poor friend, who had had one too many, and me running after her. Like, clearly I need some help getting my friend to safety. Like, you know, like, it was... The, but the bouncers just watched for ages until she went on stage to get the drink off the DJ. Then they came <laughs> and they, like, came in. I was like, thank you for letting... Yeah, helping me get her out. But, like, that's, like, one key thing that could happen. Like, you know, like, a part of that responsibility can also be shared for when, you know, um, this particular friend doesn't normally get mm. as inebriated as she was that night. I think that she just didn't understand the substances she was taking and how they would... And it how, yeah, how it would end up, like, that one would wear off and the other one would come in. I did try to, you know, you try, but mm. she didn't realise. And so perhaps if somebody had kept, like, the bouncers could say, OK, clearly that person's quite vulnerable, she's in danger, there's, you know, seagull dudes swooping in on her, like let's get her out in a taxi like just seems so simple like just do that (laughs) like you know I was just going to say I'm just coming back to some of the stuff that Kate was talking about um is there a a club or a, a festival in general that you kind of have in mind that's really sort of encompassing you know best practice in terms of this inclusive partying um, I think there has been a few that have really been stepping up and doing it quite well recently. Um, I think festivals like Inavanica have done really well at sort of linking the conversation between positive partying and safety and also um, Cool Room. Um, they've recently done a really fantastic collaboration with a New York all um, fem- female slash femme um, collective called Disc Woman. Um, They've recently had um, panels and parties in Melbourne. Both of these um, collectives are incredibly um, socially minded and inclusive and really, really take the next step in creating these safe spaces as well, which is really positive. And um, I'm sure there will be more very soon as well. Um, And there's some stuff in the works that we're really looking forward to. Um, just to kind of like finish off perhaps we'll just go through everybody and um, just if there's anything you'd like to finish off with in terms of the conversation um, 
you know, your perspective as somebody who uses as well. I think that's really key in this conversation. Um, you know, we're kind of like sitting at the bottom of a big pyramid and tree and we've got a different perspective in looking up at it and, you know, like the top town powers that kind of like have implemented prohibition and have created the environment that we're in, they're not going to understand and a lot of people don't see what we've seen in our own individual lives where we've kind of like had these experiences where, you know, like if you're using drugs all of a sudden you know it's gendered because a bunch of dudes are going to judge you for your drug use but really they're probably judging you on a bunch of other reasons on the fact that you're actually a woman but Mm. the sexism is all of a sudden concealed and it's about the drugs so yeah just a whole lot of really interesting kind of dynamics that can go on there um frank did you want to have a just yeah yeah um i I, I mean, I wasn't born a woman, and so I never really had any experiences when I was partying of having a bunch of straight dudes coming and swarming me. Um, but what I thought, what I found really interesting when I was listening to you guys speak was um, the way that the gendered experience shows up in the cultural consciousness. You know, like I think um, there's this I like you know, this is just kind of classic 101 stuff. There's this idea that if men get laid, they're more men, and so they become predatory about the way that they try and approach getting laid. Um, I think that um, it is dangerous for women to, um, you know, get too drunk at nightclubs because it leaves them vulnerable and the onus is on them to not be that drunk. If the onus is not, culturally speaking, in terms of the in terms of the discourse, the, the onus is not on men to not be predatory, it's on women to not be slutty, you know? Um, and I noticed it, <clears throat> like, back when I was kind of in the drug scene, I noticed it show up a lot with um, the ways in which people perpetrated violence, you know? Like, it wasn't the queer people and the women that were doing a lot of punching on. It was, you know, in terms of my sex worker friends, when you were on the street, you know? Like, it was the dudes that were punching on with each other. It was the... um it was the male clients that were the ones that tended to perpetrate violence and it tended to be the queer, the gender diverse and the women that were the recipients of that violence, you know, like we weren't going out there trying to roll people for their drugs. We were trying to hold on to our drugs so that we didn't get rolled, you know, <laughs> and I think that it's <clears throat> it's really interesting that particularly with these kinds of zero tolerance policies for things like drugs and things like street sex work. Um, It's like the same people that are trying to legislate against drugs and the same people that are trying to legislate against sex work and that are trying to legislate in favour of, um, you know, discriminatory policies against women and against queer people and against, you know, trans identity and all of these things are the same ones that are going to strip clubs and being feral and racist. Do you know what I mean? Like, these are the men that are actually, like, because it's not about morality. It's not about um, religion. What it's about, it's about legislating in favour of being able to discriminate against people. And those people traditionally have been women. They've been queer people. They've been gender diverse people. And, you know, that's what this war on drugs is about. That's what 
these kinds of policies are about. They're not about making the streets safer. They're not about making the world a better place. They're not about making the world nice and everybody be just good people that are, you know, constructive members of society. They're about legislating discrimination. And I think that, you know, the cultural consciousness needs to change at a really kind of fundamental level. Like it needs to change in, in, in the collective. It needs to change in kind of people's hearts, you know, before before these kinds of experiences that um, you were just talking about in nightclubs, for example, are going to even start to shift because, you know, when 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 the law comes in and watch that, watches that, they're not going to look at the dude being violent and drunk. They're going to look at the girls who are, you know, drunk and asking for it. Like this is, you know, like, you know, I live in an echo chamber where everybody thinks that that's really offensive. But out in the world, like out in the actual real world, these are the attitudes that people have. And I still get shocked by it, you know. Like I still find myself shocked by the attitudes that are held by just the general public, by people that are my friends, you know, like when you get into a deeper conversation about this, this stuff, it's unconscious, it's subliminal, it's, we don't know that we don't know it until we start looking at it, you know, it's hectic. I think one of the most challenging (coughs) things about being a bit more aware of kind of gender diversity and the experiences that are different for people who come from different perspectives in life is having to play that role of like supposedly educating somebody else around how to understand their own privilege a little bit more because there's so much pressure on you to kind of like communicate it to them in a way that's manageable and palatable for them and all of these sorts of things but still like the onus and the pressure is on you to, to make the change and to make that difference. Um, it's incredibly frustrating in some ways, but in the same way, I would not take it back in any other way, shape or form in terms of being able to have that perspective, appreciate it and understand that, you know, some of the most beautiful things in life is trying to um, understand where someone else sits in in life, um, really listening to what somebody else has to say about something, because let's face it, you can never fully know or fully comprehend what it's like to be somebody else. Um, and maybe that's kind of like part and parcel with being a you know a member of a marginal group um, is that you appreciate diversity you appreciate difference in a completely different way from someone who probably hasn't had to learn um, you know what it's like to overcome adversity at the same frequency or or level of um, of people like us so I guess like what I would leave the conversation with is that a lot of the discussion I think today has been around how spaces in our society are tailored for men because they're tailored by men Um, and that includes you know nightclubs and festivals and the very culture that we find within those spaces Um, as far as my background is concerned when I talk about having restrictions to AOD services not knowing about AOD services not being able to find protection for myself as a woman I would like to also point out that because men are more likely to be funneled into um, alcohol and other drug services, those services are then also then tailored for men. So after I had um, charged this man, like 
you know, to, a couple of years ago, I charged him. And then, you know, it was unsurprising to find myself having a resurgence of PTSD and self-medication. And it was ridiculously hard, harder than it should have been, to find help and to find service provision. And to find service provision that was able to look after the needs that I had. So there were things around going to court, uh, sexual abuse, trauma, post-traumatic stress. Um, there was a lot of pressure to go into certain streams of treatment that were just not appropriate for what I needed at the time. Um, I was unable to access um, enough therapy. So you only get 10 sessions, you get six sessions um, on the Medicare uh, funded thing and then an extra four if you need it which is ridiculous is not remotely enough I was unable to access victims compensation during the court process because to do so would risk the defense bringing it up against me during the court process so I was too scared to access access victims comp to get uh, resources that I might need such as extra therapy um into AOD services that might actually help me that didn't have massive waiting lists that might actually be able to work with me around trauma because services have been accessed primarily by men and because they're so attached to law and order approach to drug use they're not really tailored for women they're not um, there to address some of the most common um, comorbid issues for women, which is, you know, your trauma, anxiety uh, and abuse. And furthermore, women uh, also face other barriers um, of being locked out of AOD services. So I'm, I don't have any kids, but for a lot of women with kids, they don't want to report their AOD use. They don't want to report their drug use to their GP. They don't want to access services because they might get their kids taken um, away from them. And there's just also not enough spaces in um, detoxes and rehabs for families. So um, it is very male-oriented, very male-centric. Um, you know, the the kind of typical user that it seeks to, uh, that it uh, deals with is your uh, usually your young male offender. And it's not really um, a space for women to access. So I think that... Um, yeah, we really just need more diversity in policy making, particularly you know LGBT uh, women, um, you know just people of colour, because the the needs that um, these groups have differ to your you know your, your much more uh, common I guess uh, straight white men that might be picked up. Although that said, the people that are being picked up by the justice system aren't usually always white males. They're obviously um, indigenous people who, who also have their own needs, and there are there is a really great. Um, uh, indigenous focused rehab in Victoria that I can never remember the name of, um, and that's really great because you know it helps um, young Indigenous people connect back to culture. So that's the kind of model that I want to see, also being tailored for women as well. Galliamble. Yeah. Is it Galliamble? Gabby Galliamble. Is it Galliamble? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. That would be like. Did it, you want to? No. Okay. Um, just on what you were saying as well, um, it's also you know people who are from a lower socioeconomic background yeah. <laughs> that get picked up by the police. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Um, absolutely. I think, yeah, um, Sarah, you're absolutely spot on with what you just said. And um, there was a point that really resonated with me, um, what you were just saying. And as we know, you know, a bunch of 
um, cisgendered white males making um, laws or policies around women or people of colour or gender diverse people just doesn't work. Um, to be truly empowered, these communities need to be governing themselves and I think that um, extends from policy also to what we were talking about in um, spaces around the nightlife scene or the festival scene and in order to be truly um, making these spaces safe is actually making them more governed by women, by non-binary people, by people of colour and shifting what has been a, you know, white male-dominated scene, um, you know, at least in recent years, to something that is more diverse and more representative of all the people who go there and therefore safer and... Um, you know, it's it's really important that it's not just about, um, you know, safety in terms of how we use substances. I think that's really incredibly important. We need pill testing. We need education and we need to be able to do this in an educated manner, but that does and should extend to safety and identity and safety in knowing that you can go and have these experiences and go to these places and not be subject to any sort of discrimination or assault or anything that makes you feel unsafe or like you cannot be in that space and be truly comfortable. Yeah, exactly like what you were saying. It's it's not just about trying to remove all of the negatives or all of the damage or potential harms. It's actually about creating, you know, the environment that we want. Like, you know, what does what does good look like in terms of a, you know, of a, of a you know, an accessible, accessible, but, you know, like a fun party that really celebrates diversity, it celebrates difference and, and potentially even like, you know, the benefits of different sorts of communities, like, you know, the community of of women of gender diverse people you know all of that stuff so yeah Yeah, I just want to point out that we live in a representative democracy and that is supposed meant to be the very way that our society is structured so it's not a mob rule it's not majority rule even if the majority are white men it doesn't matter it's supposed to be representative and as such we should have more representative spaces within our community but we're not is our democracy even a representative democracy I mean people could argue that it's not really it's you know it's the power is obviously condensed in a certain group of people so yeah frank and i were literally just talking about that before the show like as if this is representative democracy (laughs) (laughs) um i can't help myself and actually just need to touch on the alabama um abortion laws that has been throughout the news right now when we're talking about Mm -hmm. men or, or people who are the dominant group deciding policy for people who aren't so, so i'm not sure you know if you guys know the exact details about the policy that was um yeah well, apparently like you can get more time in prison for having an abortion than a rapist would get which yeah. speaks a lot to who is making those laws absolutely yeah. absolutely and there were 25 25 votes in favor to six and those 25 people you can guess what sort of backgrounds and life experiences they've had um which is just quite 
unsurprising, like from my perspective, like of course that happened, unfortunately, but at the same time completely sort of like engendering everything that we've been talking about today. So hopefully we'll see a little bit of changes happening in America in terms of reversing that recent policy implementation. Um, But I think that probably brings everything to a close and just wanted to say again a huge thank you to everyone for coming and discussing this today. Thank you, Natalie. Psychedelia on 3CR. Thanks goes to Chloe Spann for producing and pulling together this afternoon's episode. Uh, also listen out for episode 199. You can find that in the uh, in the podcast at psychedelia.org or 3cr.org.au and the Psychedelia program page. Also, thank you to uh, Gabby from Midnight Mass Midnight on 3CR on Mondays uh, for a dose of Psytrance. Uh, Gabby helped to produce this afternoon's episode and also all the guests uh, that were on this afternoon's episode. Again, subscribe to the podcast for more and follow us, follow us on social media uh, to see more about what's happening in terms of drug policy uh, and science, culture, all the other little bits and pieces. Enjoy your afternoon. Queering the Air is up next. See you later. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Encyclopedia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.